You can subscribe to this show and support thoughtful, truth-seeking radio by going to truthjihad.com and clicking on the subscribe at Substack button. All right. Thanks for listening while we take that short break here at Revolution Radio FreedomSlips.com. And now we're going to get back to your host. Welcome back. This is the second hour of tonight's live Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, broadcasting from an old ice cream trailer somewhere in the woods of western Wisconsin. And tonight we're talking about historical revisionism. Well, yeah, sort of looking back at history and noticing things that tend to be left out from the mainstream narrative, especially from the mainstream cartoon narrative. So after revising our understanding of World War II in the first hour, let's move on to our understanding of what happened since then in terms of American biological warfare. I guess this hour is Ron Unz of the Unz Review. Ron Unz has written about the Suvorov thesis that I discussed in the first hour with Sean McMeekin, and he's recently done amazing work on the uh, thesis that the COVID-19 pandemic was set off by a neocon biowar strike on China and Iran. In his latest installment, American Pravda Waging Biological Warfare, Ronans looks back at the U.S. biological warfare programs by way of some mainstream books that present information that very few people know about. So let's talk about it. Hey, welcome, Ronans. How are you, Ron? Hey, great to be here. Good to have you back. So, yeah, you're, you're doing amazing work on this stuff. Um, you know, I, I was talking about some of these topics early on in the COVID pandemic, but now I, I keep pointing people to your work so much that some of them are getting annoyed with me. But I still think it's the best go-to place to to look at this stuff. Um, so maybe you could start by talking about the context here. What What is it that we can learn about the history of our biological warfare program, and how how does that shed light on your COVID-19 hypothesis? Well, I mean, the first thing really is that I'd been unaware of just how large and comprehensive and heavily resourced our biological warfare program had been really from the Second World War onward. And in particular, I was absolutely shocked when I discovered there's very strong evidence that America actually used its biological weapons in the Korean War after we suffered uh, some severe defeats on the ground at the hands of the intervening Chinese forces. And uh, the whole thing about it is, you know, these ideas, I've sometimes seen some references to them floating around on the Internet in the last few years. I'd never really known how seriously to take them. But when I really sat down... You know, the books that cover this material are very solid mainstream books written by extremely respectable authors, the sort of books that get reviewed favorably in the New York Times, that get glowing cover blurbs by Pulitzer Prize winning mainstream journalists. And it's all there. I mean, all the information is there. It's based mostly upon government documents that have been obtained through Freedom of Information Act requests and uh, some other things here and there. But uh, the the total weight of the evidence is really quite dramatic. And it's really shocking in a way that something as surprising as the fact that America almost certainly did wage biological warfare during the Korean War and this has been backed by such mainstream sources is so little known by 
the bulk of the American public or probably by most American journalists. I agree completely. I first encountered this uh, when I got a hold of a copy of Dave Chaddock's book, This Must Be the Place. And of course, he's not as uh, mainstream reputable as some of your sources, but um, I found his discussion of that quite credible. And it, so how can this be so well known by uh, so many um, highly regarded people? And yet uh, the culture as a whole is unaware of it. Well, I mean, that's true with a lot of the things, including many of the things that I've covered in my American Pravda series. I, I guess we could call it almost the electronic filter. In other words, you know, a book, a, a successful book can sell 10 or 20,000 copies. If it sells 40 or 50,000 copies, it becomes a bestseller, you know, including a New York Times bestseller. So we're talking about materials that are certainly not hidden away and are certainly easily obtained. You just go to Amazon and click on it and buy it. But if 30 or 40 or 50,000 people have bought a book, that's a tiny, tiny fraction of the American public, including even the well-educated, knowledgeable American public. And unless something is then promoted in the electronic media, radio, TV, movies, it really reaches so few people that pe people just aren't aware of it. And that's the whole thing. <clears throat> excuse me. I mean, there, there may be, <clears throat> excuse me, there may be many important things out there that are read by tens of thousands of people, but don't reach the millions or tens of millions of people that are, you know, basically get their knowledge from TV and movies. Right. Uh, well, Nicholson Baker's uh, story in, in New York Magazine uh, helped put the issue of the lab leak hypothesis for COVID-19 uh, into, the, into the mainstream. And you've, you've pointed out that uh, how remarkable it was that that happened so quickly. And in this new article, you've looked at Baker's book, Baseless, My Search for Secrets in the Ruins of the Freedom of Information Act, which I hope to read. I actually am um, supposedly being sent a review copy. And uh, I hadn't realized that he uh, gets into the uh, the issue of the Korean War uh, biowar program. And so maybe you could talk a little bit about his take on that. And, you know, I, I get from your uh, your article that his take is a little bit different from Dave Chaddock's. I think Dave Chaddock tends to believe sort of the more uh, maximalist interpretation that there was a large scale uh, U.S. bioware program. And uh, Baker's take is somewhat different, so maybe you could fill that in. Certainly. Uh, the story is really a fairly simple one. Uh, in the af during the Second World War, America developed a fairly detailed and comprehensive uh, biological warfare program. And the, the Japanese, meanwhile, it even developed a larger program, which they seemed, according to many things I've read, to have used fairly extensively in China. After the end of the war, America absorbed the Japanese resources and their expertise into our own program. In fact, it was the sort of thing where we cut a deal with many of the top biological warfare experts in Japan that they wouldn't be prosecuted for their war crimes in exchange for their providing all their detailed knowledge and information to our resource, our program. And that's pretty much what happened. So in other words, in the late 1940s and early 1950s, we developed a very comprehensive biological warfare program, which uh, is 
Baker mentioned, was really given resources second only to our nuclear weapons development program. So it was not a small program. It was an enormous program. I think, uh, from what I recall, we had 3,000 professionals working on it by the end of the 1940s. Then the Korean War broke out. And uh, we ended up, you know, obviously we intervened to fight the North Korean army, and we had some success initially, MacArthur did. But then as we moved up towards the Chinese border and were, you know, invading North Korea and really moving right towards the Chinese border, a huge Chinese army intervened against us. And using very effective tactics, they really severely defeated the American ground forces. In fact, according to one of the standard histories of that period, it was the worst defeat America had suffered since the Civil War. I mean, our, we lost a couple of divisions. Our troops were really crushed. They were sent fleeing back. And at that point, things got so desperate that the Joint Chiefs of Staff and President Truman were even debating the possible use of nuclear weapons, the atomic bomb, to halt the disastrous defeat that was taking place. We ended up obviously not using the atomic bomb. But there seems very strong evidence that one thing we did do at the time is deploy our biological warfare program. What we basically did was using special forces or CIA operatives or something like that, we ended up releasing a number of contagious diseases right on the front of the uh, the moving front with the North Korean and Chinese forces in hopes of sort of slowing them down or debilitating them using, oh, I can't, I mean, there were a number of different diseases. We used song fever, which is a lot like smallpox. I, I think we may have used plague. I mean, you know, pretty much our entire portfolio of biowarfare weapons was deployed at that point. And the North Koreans and the Chinese complained about it. I and mean, they, you know, accused us of war crimes that we were using illegal biological warfare. And it was pretty much dismissed by the American media at the time, and nobody believed it. In other words, we denied it very forcefully. There didn't seem to really be any solid proof at the time. And so since America and its allies dominated the global media, it pretty much was ignored. Then a couple of years later, and so that, that was really the first incident. In other words, some very limited uses by uh, really covert operatives along the front lines. And uh, that pretty much would have been probably starting in late 1950, continuing into part of 1951. Then in 1952, the front lines were going back and forth, and we'd suffered some reverses but stabilized the front against the Chinese. At that point, some very strange things started happening. In other words, there were the North Koreans and the Chinese especially ended up accusing us of launching aerial strikes of biological warfare. In other words, dropping infected rodents, infected insects, and other biological warfare distribution mechanisms from the air uh, across the front lines and even into part of China. And it was a much larger scale operation. And a number of our pilots were shot down at the time. And once they were captured by the North Koreans and the Chinese, they ended up publicly confessing to having engaged in illegal biological warfare. The Chinese then set up, organized, tried to organize an international commission to come and investigate what had happened and back up their charges. In other words, interview the eyewitnesses, 
who'd seen the planes dropping, you know, I mean, rodents and insects, which is a very strange thing for planes to be dropping if, you know, if there wasn't some sort of biological. Uh, and those were actually the typical mechanisms by which most countries, including our own biological warfare program, distributed those bioweapons. In other words, using infected insects, using infected rodents, and that sort of thing. And uh, it turns out the head of the commission, the Chinese were able to get uh, Dr. Joseph uh, Nita, one of Britain's most prestigious scientists and China experts, to agree to head the commission. And so he and the other members ended up interviewing a lot of eyewitnesses, looking at the material, checking some of the other facts. In other words, you know, seeing allegedly some examples of the strange diseases that had suddenly appeared in the wake of you know, the airdrops, interviewing some of the pilots who admitted to, you know, having engaged in biological warfare and things like that. And they ended up publishing a 665-page report documenting all the claims and very solidly backing up the Chinese and North Korean accusations that we were engaging in biological warfare. Now, Again, those charges were much more widespread and serious since, and, you know, they were backed up by, obviously, the American pilots that were admitting to what had happened. I think there were probably about 10 or 12 pilots who were captured who admitted to taking place in, uh, to uh, having participated in those illegal activities and that sort of thing. And so those charges received vastly more attention, both in the communist media, the Chinese and Soviet media, and also in a certain amount of the Western media than the earlier round of charges. But still, the American media dominated the world very much more dramatically than the Soviet or the other communist Chinese media did. So afterwards, uh, the pilots were eventually returned to the United States, and they claimed at the time that they were coerced into making their accusations, which they then retracted and denied. And pretty much over the decades, the issue had been go had gone back and forth, so that the impression I have is most mainstream historians and experts as of, say, 15 or 20 years ago, had pretty much concluded there was more likely that the Americans were telling the truth than the Chinese, and that probably there were no biological warfare attacks at the time. One thing that swayed their judgment in that direction is after the fall of communism, the Soviet archives were open, and some of the Soviet documents at the time seemed to refer to uh, attempts to set up fake contamination areas. In other words, it seemed as if they were basically promoting a lie, that they were setting up fake contamination areas in certain locations, that they were engaging in the falsification of evidence for biological warfare. And so, you know, in a sense, the mixture of the fact that there really didn't seem to be much hard evidence of it having taken place, and the fact that certain Soviet documents came out seeming to indicate that at least some of the evidence had been fabricated or concocted, generally moved most respectable opinion, most mainstream opinion in that direction. Now, it was never really resolved one way or the other. That seemed to be what most people, what most people outside this specialized area really believed as of, say, 10 or 15 years ago. What Baker's book did, I think, very effectively was to focus on the key point that America has, after 70 years, still refused to release 
a couple of dozen of the key documents that would really prove the whole issue one way or the other. So, in other words, what we have is that the Soviet archives were opened, and they showed that in some cases, at least, the Soviets seemed to have been lying. And I mean, the Chinese and the Soviets and the North Koreans seem to be lying. But on the other hand, the American documents have never been released. And when you sit back and think about it, we're talking about a war that ended almost 70 years ago. I mean, we're talking about something so incredibly distant in time with, against a communist coalition that collapsed 30 years ago. It's very hard to argue that there are any legitimate national security reasons for those sorts of documents still to be held secret on the American side after all those years, except for the fact that they might be very embarrassing if they actually prove that we had been engaging in biological warfare. Also, Baker was able to gather bits and pieces of other evidence that seems to very strongly support the contention that America was probably engaging in biological warfare, at least in late 1950 and early 1951. For example, uh, it turns out mem documents produced having to do with the Japanese biological program include interviews of, for example, a, a British soldier who saw American troops just acting in a very suspicious way in a deserted Korean village. For example, dropping feathers, and other typical biological warfare distribution mechanisms in a way that really doesn't seem very strange. Also, the fact that the diseases that then hit American troops at the time, song fever, are very, very similar in their symptoms to smallpox, which is what the communist forces were accusing America of having spread. And song fever had never been found in North Korea at the time, or any part of Korea at the time, but it was one of the one of the diseases that had been used most heavily by the Japanese in their own biological warfare program before they transferred it all to the United States. But the other point that Baker makes is that there really seems very strong evidence, you know, huge numbers of eyewitnesses that insects and rodents were dropped from American planes, just as had been you know, uh, stated by the American pilots involved. Now, what it comes down to, Baker's own, um, some, Baker's own conclusions that he drew from the evidence is that there seems very strong evidence of the initial wave of, bio of covert biological warfare by American special forces or CIA operatives in late 1950 and early 1951. And there also seems very strong evidence that American planes had dropped large numbers of insects, feathers, and rodents in the way that the Chinese and North Koreans were accusing us of. But on the other hand, the point he makes is there really doesn't seem to be any solid evidence of any any outbreaks of any of these diseases in the second round caused by the insects or the rodents being dropped. And uh, the whole thing about it is his argument, which you know seems reasonably plausible and seems to best fit the evidence, is that at that time, America, and especially the CIA and other you know uh, American special operations, focused fairly substantially on psychological warfare as well as 
physical warfare and biological warfare. In fact, in one incident, one very strange incident, the American CIA actually took a, captured a hundred North Korean frogs, painted them all red, and then dropped them from a plane to sort of scare or unnerve some of the uh, some of the communist forces that America was facing. They were, they were hoping that the communists would develop their own Charles Fort. To, uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just sort of obviously if you're ground troops and suddenly something as strange as frogs painted red are dropped under your positions, you know, you normally would be very unnerved. In fact, uh, there are also some intercepts captured by uh, America, uh, American telecommunications at the time that were only declassified in 2017, showing many, many examples of North Korean or Chinese troops saying in 1952 that they were under biological warfare attack, that insects and rodents were being dropped on their positions, you know, obviously carrying diseases, and desperately asking that DDT or vaccines be sent to them to you know, survive the attack. So his, conclu his speculation, obviously there's no way to really be sure until the American government finally releases those documents at some point, is that the insects and rodents were just being dropped from the air as a form of psychological warfare to sort of make the North Korean and Chinese troops believe that they were under biological attack, just as it had been the case the previous year. But that, you know, there was really no effort to, for example, contaminate those large numbers of insects and rodents with any of the diseases that America was working on. And that's the reason that there weren't any outbreaks that were recorded. And that also is probably the reason that as the documents from the Soviet archives show, the Soviets then attempted to deliberately fake disease, evidence of disease or outbreaks, which was intended to sort of confirm the reality of what they were claiming based on the insects and rodents being dropped on their positions. And so, you know, it, uh, in other words, I mean, I'm not saying uh, I ended up reading four or five books on the subject and the different authors have different opinions on it. But Baker's, I think, is probably the most plausible, given the fact that there really doesn't seem to be much any much evidence of actual disease outbreaks in the second round. While there seem, does seem very strong eyewitness evidence of America dropping insects and rodents on the positions to sort of scare the North Vietnamese and, and Chinese into believing that they were under attack. And so, you know, again, uh, until the documents are released, there's no way of knowing, but that seems probably the most likely conclusion from, you know, the evidence that is available right now. So it sounds like those American pilots who were captured uh, were telling the truth when they said that, yeah, we were trapping insects in and, and rodents, and they probably assumed that these were biological weapons. But then when they returned to the U.S., uh, they were very uh, harshly uh, treated uh, so as to get them to recant. And then the story was put out that there was the North Korean brainwashing program that had turned them into Manchurian candidates, as it were. Um, and supposedly this actually led to U.S. interest in mind control programs and before you know it, we had the MK Ultra program and so on. Now, here's here's one part of your article that I would actually uh, tend to disagree with. You seem to suggest that the MK Ultra program failed. That is the you know that the paper trail we have does show them doing all these crazy things 
testing various kinds of mind control approaches. And then the paper trail kind of suddenly stops. I forget which year it was. It's been a long time since I studied this, but I, I read a lot of 68, around 68, 68 or that late. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, because I remember from when I first started studying this back in the 70s. Oh, oh I'm sorry. You're right. It probably was more like 50s. 62 or 63. Yeah, yeah. Or, or closer to 1960, I think. Sure. And so so it, it's, it actually doesn't just peter out. It just kind of stops. And before it stops, there are some indications that there may be something uh, happening successfully with some combination of drugs and hypnosis. So uh, my reading of this, and, and you know, this goes back to the Rockefeller Commission hearings that produced stuff like John Mark's book, The Search for the Manchurian Candidate, which I read when it came out in the 70s, that it sure looks like they came up with something that was pretty effective, and it sure looks like it was used on various people. You know, the, uh, there's that, that book on Manson that got into Jolly West's history, Jolly West being the CIA mind control uh, czar, one of them. And he appears to have used this on Jack Ruby, uh, most likely, but we can certainly uh, be pretty sure that such techniques were used on Sirhan Sirhan, among others. And there are many, many other cases as well. And then I've talked to veterans of our intelligence services who assure me that, yes, uh, you know, anybody who's even heard, you know, if you've heard about date rape drugs, yeah, they work. And professionals can use a combination of drugs and hypnosis to uh, exert very strong mind control on a great many, probably majority of people. So uh, your conclusion in the article that the mind control program didn't work, I think is, at least if, if, if I'm reading that correctly, um, is I think obviously wrong. That, that's certainly possible. In other words, really, uh, again, I, my limited knowledge of that particular area of the issue really came from probably that one book about uh, Dr. Gottlieb and his background. And that was sort of the conclusion of the author. Now, one thing I should say, which might be uh, sort of splitting the difference on this issue, the mind control approach that the CIA really was hoping to get, I think, was something much more powerful and detailed. Uh, take, for example, the case of Sirhan Sirhan, which there seems to be quite a bit of evidence that he was sort of somehow hypnotized or drugged or something like that to serve as sort of the patsy in that operation in, you know, RFK assassination. But the point about it is he didn't actually, he wasn't actually the assassin. In other words, they were able to, if that is the case of what happened, they were able to sort of operate on him to the point where they could get him to be in a certain location, to get him to take out his gun and sort of shoot it in the general direction that they wanted, and then to lose all memory of what had happened. But what the CIA, I think, based on my reading, had really been originally hoping for was something much more powerful and detailed than that. They really were hoping to basically be able to take control, take mind control over somebody and get him to fulfill a series of very detailed tasks, in a sense to serve as an undercover operative in an enemy organization, which is something much more difficult and complex than just to sort of have somebody stand in a certain place at a given time and, you know, act in a way that doesn't really, that really more diverts attention from the actual incident that's taking place. And so, for example, at least, you know, to be perfectly honest, I'm just not aware of any cases since then that have been successful examples of mind control 
in the way that the CIA originally was hoping to achieve. And by the way, uh, the thing about the Sirhan Sirhan case, which is really quite interesting, which I only discovered a couple of years ago, and I sort of emphasize, <laughs> which came from my reading of that book by Ronan Bergman, is that, for example, the Israelis, who were also doing exactly the same thing at the same time, were trying to get to produce an assassin to go into uh, the PLO organization and kill Yasser Arafat. And it apparently failed in a entirely miserable way. In other words, it was entirely unsuccessful. The individual was sent into Arafat's organization, but once he got there, he immediately told the people what had happened. Yeah, he said, and, I've been hypnotized by the Mossad to kill Arafat. Yeah, so. exactly, exactly. So, you know, so the whole thing about it is, you know, that I think was more what the CIA had originally been aiming for, to be able to send somebody into an enemy organization to, you know, serve as an internal intelligence operative, as an internal assassin, something closer to, for example, what the movie The Manchurian Candidate was about, where somebody could be used as sort of a covert operative on a longer term basis without the need for, you know, constant uh, reinforcement of the original hypnosis or drug situation. That's obviously very different. If Sirhan Sirhan had been operated on that way, that's very different than what they achieved with Sirhan Sirhan or any of these other individuals you mentioned. So that's a good, but but uh, there there are rumors. uh, William Colby supposedly told John DeCamp, and I interviewed DeCamp, uh, I had three three hours worth of interviews of him uh, several years ago, and he, he said that Colby had told him that they had succeeded in, well, they they had they were running these mind control mind control slaves with altered personalities. There are all sorts of rumors about this, and there's all sorts of work on this. So I, I think we, you know, we, since we don't know for sure, I guess we can we can split the difference. <laughs> but but I, sure, I'm sure. I, I would guess that Sirhan Sirhan is far from the apex of mind control technology. Um, in any case, uh, getting back to bio warfare and how this uh, contextualizes the possibility that COVID comes out of a biowar program. Um, so uh, you you, also, you got into a number of other books on the subject, and uh, what you, you really you, you, well, you you mentioned the the attempts to take out the Soviet wheat supply. You didn't mention some of the ones that I'm familiar with, such as uh, various attacks on Cuba, and then the one that's been fully documented in peer-reviewed literature, which was the uh, the Rhodesia uh, attacks during that uh, revolutionary war uh, against the white settlers in Rhodesia. But the bottom line here is it looks like they've they, biological warfare has been used a number of times, and it seems like it's quite useful because it's so deniable. You can maybe mention a couple of the other cases. Oh, yes, that's entirely true. For example, one of the points made uh, in the analysis of our biowarfare program was that a lot of our emphasis, especially early on during the Second World War, was actually not so much anti-personnel biowarfare, but anti-crop, anti-food supply biowarfare. In fact, there seems some pretty good evidence that we ended up destroying most most of the Japanese rice harvest right at the end of the war. And that if the war hadn't hadn't ended when it did, we would have been able to impose really almost total starvation on the Japanese population. They lost a very large fraction of their rice harvest 
right after the time that we were focusing on producing biowarfare and other techniques for destroying the Japanese rice harvest. So it seems likely that... Oh, sorry? Uh, it's a, what a coincidence. The coincidence... Yeah, is exactly. And then afterwards, in the uh, late in the 1950s, we ended up putting in a lot of effort on similarly targeting the Soviet wheat supply, developing wheat rust strains that would be designed to really wipe out Soviet food production, you know, since they were very heavily dependent on wheat. And one of the ironic things that Baker focuses on is, you know, bioweapons sometimes are dangerous to use for both the side that wields them as well as the targeting side, because, you know, when you're talking about self-replicating biological entities that don't care about where the border is, you know, it's, they're very dangerous things to deal with. And in the case, for example, of the wheat rust harvest, we ended up spending the early ninth, uh, spending a few years up to about 1950, developing these very deadly, uh, I think, fungal agents to destroy wheat crops. And then since we needed to produce a huge number of spores, we ended up actually using certain fields in the Midwest to try to build up a spore supply so that we'd have it available in the event of war with the Soviet Union. And as it happened in the early 1950s, those areas, uh, and the spores involved are very light. It's very easy for them to be lofted by winds, and they multiply very rapidly. So in that part of the Midwest, we ended up suffering terrible um, attacks of exactly the wheat rust that we've been developing that area. And we, I, I hadn't been aware of it at all. But for example, in 19, I think it was 1954, we ended up losing a quarter of our, um, of our uh, uh, bread wheat crop and three quarters of our pasta wheat crop through exactly the sort of fungal spores that we'd been developing in that part of the uh, part of the country. And then we ended up trying the same thing again in the early 1960s in a few Kansas fields developing spores again for, you know, attack a potential attack on the Soviet Union. And those spores, then we ended up having exactly the same situation where Kansas and Nebraska suddenly suffered devastating wheat blights in 1965, after which supposedly the program was terminated. So, I mean, the other thing also is that, uh, just as you mentioned, uh, it seems there's really pretty strong evidence we attacked the poultry and the pigs of Cuba in, I think it was probably the mid-1960s. They suffered devastating viral attacks, swine flu, and poultry attacks on their food supply. Uh, I think 500,000 Cuban pigs were destroyed. And there's also some evidence we may have attacked the East German pork supply as well a few years earlier. And uh, in those cases, you know, the attacks were partially successful. But I mean, those exact sort of food crop attacks, coincidentally enough, what happened in China in 2018 and 2019, in 2018, China suddenly suffered a devastating attack on its poultry industry that destroyed a large fraction of all of its uh, chickens. And in 2019, the swine flu epidemic devastated China, destroying 40% of all of their pigs, which, I mean, I don't know the exact number, but apparently 25% of all the pigs in the world were destroyed because of the uh, sudden swine flu epidemic in China. So, you know, when you have 
sudden mysterious viral epidemics targeting China's poultry and pork food supply breaking out in 2018 and 2019 in a very similar way to the the way America, you know, according to all these records, targeted the Cuban food supply, poultry and pigs back in the mid-1960s. It, it certainly, you know, adds a lot of context to then this mysterious viral outbreak dangerous to humans that broke out in China then towards the end of uh, 2019. But I mean, probably the most uh, important aspect of this material with regard to the COVID epidemic is simply the huge magnitude and continuous resources that were devoted to America's biological warfare program really from the Second World War onwards. I mean, we're talking about 50, 60, 70 years creating one, what now is clearly the world's leading biological warfare program. And so, you know, when you're then speculating about whether a biological warfare attack took place, and if one of the possible parties involved has had for 60 or 70 years the world's largest biological warfare program, and there's evidence that the program was actually used during the Korean War in a, in a uh, covert style manner and was used also to target the Cuban food supply. And as you say, I'm, I'm not as familiar with the um, question of the Rhodesian anthrax or other diseases used, but I mean, biological warfare has really been used much more commonly than most people realize. And that adds to the background when we're praising the likelihood of what happened with the COVID outbreak. Uh, the other thing also is when you look at what happened, for example, with the case of the wheat rust, the fact that it accidentally got out and devastated America's own wheat crop, and the fact that there's also really quite a lot of evidence that the Lyme disease uh, epidemic, which has been really infesting um, the northeast of the United States, especially the New England area for several decades now, there's quite a lot of evidence apparently it was the unintended leak from an American biological warfare program targeting uh, targeting cattle that was being developed on Plum Island, which is right next, right near Lyme, Connecticut, and probably leaked out and infested then the Lyme, Connecticut area and spread to the rest of the Northeast. I mean, these sort of unintended blowbacks have happened quite a lot in the past. Now, in most of these cases, the diseases involved were not remotely as contagious as COVID. So when they spread, they didn't do nearly as much harm, or if they targeted the food supply, they were eventually stamped out. But you really see that you know the likelihood of unintended blowback from a biological warfare attack is probably a lot higher than many of its proponents might imagine, and you know that obviously raises you know questions of how the COVID disease got out and you know, who was behind it, and if it more likely would have been an American attack on China and Iran that then accidentally, you know, got loose in the world and then targeted America and Europe and most of the rest of the world in a way that was very unintended. And, you know, one aspect of your hypothesis that I don't think you maybe have emphasized as much as I would is that if indeed the U.S. attacked uh, Wuhan and Qom with covid Part of the rationale for that might have been not only to attempt to damage these countries' economies and so on, but also 
to plant the seed of a kind of a false flag scenario in which down the line China could be blamed for COVID. And you have covered this to some extent with your discussion of the dubious sources that immediately began beating the drums for the uh, uh, the Wuhan flu, uh, the China did it kind of approach to COVID. But I think we can see now that that's become much more bipartisan. You know, it went from the fringe websites to the Trump administration, but now it's it's seems bipartisan. And I would guess that's probably by design. And and it's a club that can be held over the head of China in the same way that 9-11 was a club that could be held over the head of Saudi Arabia and Pakistan. Um, and we know Pakistan was directly threatened. Uh, we're going to bomb them back to the Stone Age post 9-11 if they didn't do everything we told them. And likewise, uh, Saudi Arabia very likely was brought back into line using 9-11 as well. So I'm, I'm wondering whether at some future point, if if the uh, U.S., um, what should we call them, the mighty Wurlitzer unleashed a real powerful uh, drum roll and drumbeat telling us that China did COVID, they owe us trillions and we'd better uh, really go after them, that this could, you know, it, it, it could be a kind of a, a trigger for pushing public opinion towards a more bellicose policy towards China or even out and out war. Oh, I certainly agree with that. And, uh, you know, the fact that the American, that elements of the American media are really more fringe elements of the American media so quickly began accusing the COVID out, began claiming that the COVID outbreak was probably a Chinese bioweapon that had leaked out of their own laboratory, for which there was absolutely no evidence at all. And the fact that now the lab leak theory has been revived certainly does, you know, raise that line of attack against the Chinese. In fact, one interesting analysis I've done, which I'd done in a previous article a few weeks ago, was the notion of accusing China of having produced the secret deadly bioweapon and then accidentally leaked it out. You know, probably the main reason for it was exactly what you and I have been saying. In other words, a way of sort of throwing the blame on China before China even had gotten into the propaganda war of force for uh, stalling any chance of blaming America for, you know, the likelihood of having been responsible for the attack for uh, any sort of biowarfare attack. But an alternate aspect of it, which may or may not have been in the minds of some of these um, some of the people behind this media offensive would have been then to cause a lot of the respectable scientists to immediately come out and say, no, 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 it couldn't be a bioweapon. It couldn't be a Chinese bioweapon. And the reason we know it couldn't be a Chinese bioweapon is because the virus was obviously natural. And that happened very early on. By March and by February and March, a sort of elite scientific consensus, a pseudo-consensus have been formed claiming that COVID was obviously a natural virus and so it could in no way be a Chinese bioweapon. And I've certainly suspected that a lot of the reason those scientists took that line was to forestall exactly the argument you were making. In other words, the accusations that China had unleashed this terrible bioweapon. But one useful aspect of having suddenly you know, established with an article in Nature and another article in Lancet and a sort of front of respectability that the virus was entirely natural 
meant that, for example, when the Iranians then accused us directly of having staged a bio-warfare attack against them, that was immediately discounted as being irrational Iranian claims because everybody, know, all the respectable people, knew that the virus was natural by that point. And so it served as a shield against Iranian accusations. And then one reason I think then there was no effort to maintain that a few months ago, and we went back to sort of the establishment now seems to be saying, yes, it probably was an artificial virus after all, is because a year later, everybody's forgotten the original Iranian accusations, which were quite vocal at the time and might have had more chance of getting somewhere if the establishment hadn't convinced themselves that the virus was entirely natural. So the point we're, right at, we're at right now is it looks as if the elite consensus of the media and the American establishment seems to be trending in the direction of saying the virus is artificial and it came from a lab and it probably came from the Chinese Wuhan lab, which people have focused on. Uh, we'll know probably in another two or three weeks because I, I think the uh, Biden administration had promised to provide a 90-day review of the evidence. And I think it's probably at the end of August that they'll be coming out with their intelligence report saying whether or not they believe the virus is natural and whether or not they believe it might have leaked from the Wuhan lab. But that's certainly the direction things have been trending. If at some point then the establishment really does agree that the virus is artificial, I do think it'll probably be more difficult for them to confine the entire debate to the single possibility of it being a Wuhan lab leak and totally ignore the far stronger evidence that I've been focusing on that it was an American virus that was launched against Wuhan, against Qum at that point in time, you know, almost really almost simultaneously. So it seems to me that there may be more of an opening for my hypothesis to get more attention or at least some mainstream attention if it turns out the consensus does form on the virus being artificial. And in fact, a number, number of cases of people, you know, really fairly establishmentarian sort of people that I've been raising this issue with, they'd really almost dismissed my idea out of hand until a few months ago when suddenly the entire establishment did a 180 reversal and now pretty much tends to argue that the virus probably was artificial and came from a lab. Because once you've seen the establishment switch its position so dramatically based on absolutely no new evidence, people's faith in the reliability of the establishment verdict suddenly is shaken to the point where they may be more willing to consider outside possibilities. And certainly the fact that I've now published this article, really just going through a few of very mainstream authors and books and documenting the fact that we've had an enormously large and heavily resourced biological warfare program for over 70 years, which most of these people, really almost any of these people were unaware of at the time, I think may help you know, open their mind to the possibility of COVID being part of that program. And the whole thing, my scenario is not that this was an official U.S. government operation. I mean, given the fact that it was so disastrously damaging to the United States, I mean, it seems to me a lot of people raised perfectly valid points that these risks and possibilities certainly would have come up in any sort of major review of a possible scenario to deploy a weapon like this. 
my argument is that this was probably a rogue operation by a handful of the uh, neocons, the sort of deep state neocons near the top of the Trump administration, without Trump having been aware of it or approved it, which is why he reacted in such a you know, scatterbrained sort of way when you know, suddenly COVID came back to the United States. So you know, if we're talking about a handful of people making the decision to take down, to disrupt the Chinese economy and society, to strike a blow at the political elites in Iran, a small number of people like that certainly wouldn't go through all of the risk assessments that a typical large bureaucratic operation would involve. And if they made the decision to launch that sort of attack, you know, possibly with someone like Mike Pompeo or John Bolton being at the head of that small group, they then would have had, I think, a very easy time drawing on the resources, the human and biological warfare resources of the American military establishment. In other words, the virus itself probably would have come from Fort Detrick or one of our other labs. The operatives who released it in China, in Wuhan, probably would have been the CIA or Special Forces people. All those individuals involved in the operation would have assumed they were involved in a fully authorized, covert operation against two of America's most significant international adversaries. Because, I mean, who would they have gone to for confirmation? If someone like Mike Pompeo, former director of the CIA and secretary of state atop Trump administration official had been behind it or in on the operation. The only person above him would have been Trump. And I mean, nobody at Fort Detrick would, you know, have the nerve to say, well, I have to speak to the president about something like this. If, you know, if the secretary of state, former CIA director has signed off on it and said the president has signed off on it. So, I mean, that's why, you know, this sort of operation, I think, would be very different than from what had happened during the Korean War and some of these other biowarfare attacks, and why I think you know the likelihood of it having happened in that way is really pretty high, at least compared to all the other possibilities. The key point I've been telling people is if the if the virus if COVID is artificial, then it came from a lab. The two likely places it came from were either a Chinese lab, probably the Wuhan lab that people talk about, or an American lab. It was either a lab leak in Wuhan or a biowarfare attack by the United States. And when you really look at the evidence, including, for example, that Australian virologist who was present at the Wuhan lab, who was working at the Wuhan lab during this entire time period, she's very confident that Wuhan never developed this virus and also very confident that there was no lab leak that took place. So the bottom line is there's absolutely zero evidence that the Chinese developed this virus and zero evidence of any lab leak in Wuhan. And once we weigh that, an absence of evidence for that scenario, against very considerable evidence on the side of it being an American biowarfare attack, I think the likelihood falls very strongly in the second direction. And another historical precedent, and of course, we only have a couple of minutes left, uh, but another precedent that would make your scenario seem more likely is the uh, 2001 anthrax deception, as Graham McQueen's book puts it in its title. It seems that a uh, kind of a small team of neocons must have been behind that as well. 
they they sheep dipped a couple of 9-11 hijackers in anthrax, got them ostensibly treated for anthrax exposure in Florida in the summer of 2001, so they could make a link between 9-11 and anthrax and try to blame it on a combination of al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein. It fell apart when the FBI uh, was honest and admitted it was Amerithrax, uh, highly weaponized US, U.S. anthrax. So now that we've kind of solved that case through Graham McQueen's book, I wonder if the parallels there, uh, the type of uh, people who would have been behind that could also be the same type of people that would have been behind this. That That's an excellent point. That's an excellent point. And anyway, the official verdict of the anthrax attacks is that it was an um, internal American rogue operation. In other words, personally, I think it's very likely it was the neocons you were talking about, but the official verdict by the government is it was uh, Bruce Ivins who was doing it one of the researchers, and before they tried to pin it on a previous researcher. So in other words, everybody agrees it was an American internal operation. In other words, it had nothing to do with a foreign country. And we just disagree about which Americans were behind it. But that, again, strengthens the case of you know a small group of people being involved in the COVID operation, though in this case it would have been people probably much more highly placed in the Trump administration. And again, the fact that Donald Trump brought into his administration as an assistant secretary, uh, Robert uh, uh, Kedlock, uh, one of America's top biowarfare advocates for 30 years. I mean, he's been advocating biowarfare as a tool of international conflict for 30 years. It brought him in in 2017. Then in 2018, there was suddenly a mysterious viral epidemic that hit China's poultry industry. In 2019, China's pig industry pig herds were devastated by a mysterious viral epidemic. And then at the end of 2019, a sudden a mysterious virus broke out in Wuhan that eventually spread around the world, but first hit Iran. So, I mean, the pattern of results is strong enough that I really think it's, it really is a sign of incredible cowardice on the part of the media and so many individuals, even in the alternative media, that virtually none of them are willing to consider any of this evidence, even though it's been out there for well over a year now. Yeah, I, I agree. And I'm frustrated by it too. And I find that many of my alternative media colleagues, uh, for whatever reason, uh, seem to be unable to understand that the evidence that you're putting forward here in, in the context is more persuasive than a lot of other uh, speculation about COVID. Although I, I do think that there's room for some other speculation about the possibility that the whoever did this might have actually considered the blowback. And, you know, perhaps uh, if they're crazy enough, uh, maybe even wanted the blowback. Um, but that's that's another story. And we're at the end of this hour, so we can't get into those details. So at this point, I guess all I can say is uh, you're doing amazing work on this issue, Ron. And I uh, look forward to your next installment because this, this is, you know, I, I think you're actually, your, your position with this issue is in some ways analogous to David Ray Griffin's with 9-11. And that's what got me interested in that issue. Uh, he did such excellent work on it that people really had to pay attention to it. And I think you're doing that with the uh, COVID origin issue. So, so thank you. Hey, well, thanks a lot. Okay. Take care. That's Ron Unz of the Unz Review, UNZ.com. I'm Kevin Barrett of Truth Jihad Radio on the web at truthjihad.com, where you can subscribe at Substack. Thanks for listening. See you next time.